Well, welcome to Compound Thesis. Uh, super excited. Today, our guest is Seth Gins. He's a managing partner and the head of liquid investments at CoinFund. Welcome to the show, Seth. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's great to see you. So, you know, before we kind of dive into uh, CoinFund, I know, you know, you spent uh, two decades, not three, at... Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, at, at Jenison, um, which is one of the, you know, top fundamental investing shops uh, in large cap kind of equity space. Um, what got you excited about crypto or blockchain in generally uh, and what made you kind of focus on the space exclusively? Yeah, so I, um, I I read about Bitcoin back in 2011 and in The New Yorker, funny enough, and um, there wasn't a great way to, to buy it at the time. You just had to wire money to Mt. Gox. And I thought that was a little shady. Um, but then in 2012, I was doing startup investing and this was all just like PA. Um, and, and I saw a deal flow out of Y Combinator and I saw Coinbase and I was like this, uh, this is like the, the compliant way to buy Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, bought a, uh, well actually did a seed investment in Coinbase and then bought some Bitcoin on, on Coinbase. And that was my start in the space. And then for the next eight years, I did a bunch of other angel investments, you know, once you make an investment in a space, then you're like, it, it's easier to like follow it, stay in the loop on what's happening in that area. Um, so, so saw like, you know, what was happening in ETH and got engaged there and some other startups. And my view was always if and when this becomes an institutional asset class, I'd want to be ready to launch a fund. Um, saw that uh, coming together in 19 um, and, and the rest is history. I had known the coin fund guys from the New York ecosystem um, and when I was going to crypto events, I was seeing allocators, you know, the, the last bull market, there was this whole theme, like the institutions are coming, but like the institutions didn't all come at once. Like they, they went up a learning curve and, and back in like 19, we started to see some really big institutions saying, I want to learn about this space. I think this could be real. And it was usually like, you, you know, an analyst who was super passionate about crypto and, um, yeah, that, that just started to build. And, and then I joined coin fund at the beginning of 20. So I think you, you tried to launch a kind of digital asset strategy at Jenison right before you fully transitioned over into coin fund. Can you tell us like what that experience was like? Yeah, that was actually, it wasn't right before that was back in the summer of 17. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it's really funny. I remember, um, Ari Paul, uh, doing a podcast where he's talking about how they custodied their crypto. And he was like, you know, we have this air gap laptop and then we put uh, duct tape on it and then we splash nail polish on it and take a picture so we know if it's tampered with. That was not like institutional speed. Um, so so the big difference between the summer of 17 and 19 was seeing institutional grade custody come into play. So Coinbase custody. Fidelity was doing it for uh, for Bitcoin, um, but but not a broader set of assets at that time. Um, it, it was seeing uh, the derivatives ecosystem come into its own with CME, CBOE starting to get some some volumes. By then, by 19, I think CBOE had dropped out, but CME was starting to see um, more activity. So it was all of these different elements of what you would need for institutional engagement coming together that two years earlier we didn't see. Um, but what's interesting is um, it. it it, it kind of the, the bull market in 17 with the ICO boom, um, it it led to a wave of capital, a wave of builders. And you you 
you planted the seeds for the next bull market very much in the same way that what we saw over the course of 2021 and really through 22 has planted the seeds for um, for the, this next bull market, which we think we're in the early innings of now. So um, th this is like a tried and true path in crypto. The cadence of innovation is really high and um, you, you get a price move, which then leads to uh, developers, then leads to capital. Um, and, and then that ends up planting the seeds for, for your next bull market. And that bull market can be because the tech is amazing um, that that's developed out of that, or the bull market can be that, um, you've built a lot of really important infrastructure, which then allows for a new set of entrants. Um, in, in the case of the 2020, uh, through 22 market institutions to, to come in a big way. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, these cycles continue to repeat and, you know, for somebody that's been in investing for a long time, uh, you know, probably some idiosyncratic factors that drive the bull markets and the bear markets in crypto. But as you're seeing different trends and we'll get into kind of your thoughts as to where we're heading from here, but it is positive to see, you know, despite the price action over the last you know couple of months certainly has not the organic, you know, growth numbers underneath the hood. If you look at uh, you know, developers and and all of the infrastructure that's being built in this ecosystem, the talent and the capital that keeps coming this direction, um, you know, seems like it's it's planting the seeds for that next stage of growth. And uh, so we'll get into that. But I wanted to pick your brain a little bit more on CoinFund itself. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your role there and kind of what makes CoinFund unique? I know it's kind of like a crossover strategy where you have, you know, seed, venture and, and liquid strategy. So if you could give us a little bit of breakdown as to as to the firm and, and specifically what you're focused on would be really helpful. Yeah. So we um, we, we look at uh, CoinFund as being the premier crypto investment platform. We have um, uh, activities across venture and liquid. Um, and, and we were started back in 2015 by my partner, Jake, uh, who's an engineer. Um, he was out in Brooklyn, saw the, the development of the Ethereum ecosystem. He was like, I want to find a way to support this. Um, and, and we had a small uh, friends and family pool of capital. And, and that really got everything going. That, that was well before my time. What, what I love to point out about when Jake started CoinFund is, is the fact that it, it wasn't when uh, Bitcoin was at an all-time high. It was actually um, the the all-time high was November of 2013 with Bitcoin at 1100. It was right around Thanksgiving um, mm -hmm. when Jake started CoinFund. It was the depths of the bear market. It was like Bitcoin $200, um, and, and it was about the tech. Um, and and the tech has been um, a, a a guiding light for CoinFund since then. Um, I think what What's really interesting and differentiating is as we came into the, the cycle when I joined, so I joined at the beginning of 20 and I'm one of the managing partners at the firm. Um, we, we kind of said the institutions are getting ready to come and now is the time to uh, aggressively reinvest in uh, building out institutional grade infrastructure. So saying in a few years, if this is an asset class that institutions are engaging with in a material way, both on the venture side and on the liquid side, what what are they going to need from a controls perspective, an infrastructure perspective? Um, and, and we really um, started to 
um, higher a lot on that front at the beginning of 21. We, we always kind of had that mindset, but then um, building out what, whether it was on the, the liquid side, ahead of trading, head of trading ops, who both come from traditional finance, um, whether it was our CFO, our president, Chris Perkins, who came from uh, Citigroup, um, really focused on making sure that we're bringing best-in-class uh, infrastructure ideas, controls from the traditional finance world, um, but then also um, having a, a very crypto-native um, approach as well. Um, from Jake's background, from the early days of crypto, my partner, Alex Felix, also uh, early in the space, my background going back to, to 2012, and, and then the broader investment team having been engaged for, for a long time. So looking across venture and liquid, um, doing it in a way that um, really takes the best of crypto native um, and traditional finance learnings. And is thinking about not where crypto is today, but where it, it's going um, as an investable asset class over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. So with the private and, you know, I guess, public arms being your venture and the liquid strategies, how do those two, you know, work side by side or how does the strategy in one inform the strategy of the other? Could you talk through, you know, because the crossover funds are very popular in traditional equities, right? If you look at the Tigers and the Kotus of the world um, that have a venture strategy as well as a public, a public equity strategy, oftentimes looking at the same sectors, there's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of overlap between those two and they tend to inform each other. So curious if that works similarly, if you're very close with your venture partners from the liquid strategy perspective. Yeah, no, we, we think um, what, what's cool about crypto is there's a lot of information um, available out in the public domain, um, but it's like drinking from a fire hose. Um, so having, and if you think about a lot of um, a, a lot of areas that we're excited about today, whether it's zero knowledge rollups, um, whether it's data unions, um, whether it's ETH scaling uh, more broadly than, than ZK, um, whether it's cross-chain interoperability, there's, um, th there's a lot that's liquid. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot that's still um, not liquid, um, but, but that's live and actionable and, and you can play around with the, the tech. Um, and there are lots of views out there um, in, in the public domain. So we, we think it's really powerful to have this combination of um, people who are looking at what's happening in the, the part of the universe that's still not um, tied to liquid tokens, as well as um, the, the liquid token part um, and, and providing that full waterfront view um, to help inform where the competitive landscape is going to be over the next year, two years, three years, um, and, and try to try to have a well-informed view about um, which competitive advantages are going to be um, more resilient and which might uh, be subject to new competition um, and, and greater competitive forces. So um, we, we really like having that view across the waterfront and have analysts that uh, that spend time um, uh, looking across both liquid and illiquid and 
um, contributing ideas, thinking about strategy and, and tactics across both areas. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the ecosystem continues to evolve, but you know, on the liquid side, you could still look at a lot of those as early stage startups, just with more of a you know liquid investable asset, I guess, behind it. Um, but you know, certainly uh, having a visibility across the entire ecosystem, regardless of stage, gives you a, a really good seat at the table to uh, figure out where to invest, but also how to advise you know portfolio companies uh, as they think about their strategic priorities and, and also potential opportunities. Um, I, I guess one other thing too, you mentioned CoinFund, the Genesis was really a bunch of friends uh, that were getting together. I'd imagine that your, uh, your LPs look a lot different than they did a couple of years ago. Can you talk about you know, conversations or, or just the evolution of your institutional allocator relationships and kind of where things stand today and where you see them heading? Yeah, so uh, early coin fund, as I noted, what was uh, a bunch of friends and family, and um, a lot of those people were early developers in the space, early founders. Um, if you look at where um, our LP base is today, um, it, it reflects the fact that institutions have started to uh, to come into the space a lot more. Um, I, I think we were. Um, public about some of the LPs um, in our uh, venture fund uh, that we raised last summer. Um, th those are some of the, um, the biggest institutions out there, um, like Texas teachers, um, that, that are um, very much um, interested in the space, um, see it as an emerging area of tech that they want to uh, stay close to. Um, you know, I think um, all of the big institutions are coming in um, in a measured way, um, but but that's that that's really similar to um, what, when you think about how I described my start in crypto a decade ago, getting a few investments in my my PA um, and having that be a reason to following it more closely. Um, and, and really uh, drive a deeper understanding of what was happening in the space. Um, so I think it's really healthy um, at, at any size at this point. What's really interesting is um, we, we get a lot of questions around how um, everything that happened with FTX impacted institutional interest. And um, we, we certainly have seen um, some institutions say, Look, we, we were getting there and, and now we're going to slow down our, our pace of engagement a little bit. Um, I, I'd say there was more of that in November and December of last year. What's really interesting, though, is at the start of this year, even before we started to see prices move higher, um, we were having meetings with institutions where they were saying um, we're, we're starting to get really excited about valuations, um, particularly on the liquid side, but, but also on the venture side. Um, and one thing that's been in common, they, there were multiple institutions that kind of look quite different. So um, from foundations to um, a, an endowment to sovereign wealth funds um, that, that were making comments like that. But the thing that they had in common was they had all already owned some crypto through a cycle. Um, so they weren't 
brand new to crypto saying, okay, now we think this is the right time to, to start dialing up our engagement. They had either been involved on the, the venture side through a cycle, been involved on the liquid side through a cycle. They had met a lot of teams, met a lot of investors, and um, they, they were comfortable saying, we, we've seen what this looks like, what a, what a cycle looks like. We're actually willing to make the bet this time that this cycle is going to be shorter than prior cycles because more of our peers are um, uh, tuned in to what's happening here. This is, um, th this is a very different um, environment for crypto for, for this drawdown than what we've seen in prior cycles. Um, so they're, they're kind of familiar with the space and they're primed to try to engage at the right time cyclically, um, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, you know, I've been in this space now for, call it nine months um, as a as an operator. Uh, I've been an investor for a number of years, but watching the, you know, the timelines are so compressed in this space, whether it's uh, the cycles that you're talking about or even just innovation. And so, uh, you know, when it was November and Doomsday was kind of on our front door and all of a sudden here we are in February, a lot of the, uh, you know, that has really shocked, I think, a lot of people is how quickly the space has rebound. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with your point of the last number of years really built a strong foundation of uh, developers and the ecosystem and the technology and the institutional adoption, regulatory involvement um, globally just creates a much stronger foundation. And we're seeing that in the price action as well. And so it's very promising to hear that on the allocator side that they're also noticing that as well. We did a um, we, we did a presentation a few weeks ago, and one of the things that we pointed out was so Electric Capital had a great developer report, um, two hundred ninety seven percent growth in monthly active developers from uh, the peak of the last bull market in seventeen to today, um, five percent growth over the course of twenty two, despite prices being down a lot, and and that's the lifeblood of the industry, right? That's that's what's sowing the seeds for the, the next bull market. And I, I remember when I was on the equity side going in to talk to a prominent venture firm and around the table, we had a bunch of the largest equities investors in the FANG names. Um, and uh, they said, what should we be watching for disruption to our large shareholdings in, in the big tech names? Without missing a beat, they said, crypto blockchain, we follow where the, the best developers are going and we see this stream of developers coming in. And that was right around that end of 2017 level because it flattened out in 18 into early 19 when I had that meeting. So we've had really material growth since then. But what really drove the last bull market was the, the building and the capital that came in from that 2017, 2018 cycle. So um, really, really exciting stuff. And I, I think um, the the institutional investors that, that have come in see that. It's hard to not see that and be excited about it. So, so yeah, we're, we're feeling good. When you highlight that, you know, call it 5% year over year growth, I guess, in 2022 for developers, is that in any particular ecosystem? Do you kind of break that out or did Electric break that out uh, in different, you know, L1s or L2s or different spaces that you find where the most developer activity is heading? 
Yeah, they they broke that out, and um, there there's some dispersion, um, but but it generally um, uh, leans to the places that that you would expect. And and look, you don't mm -hmm. you don't bet against the ETH ecosystem. Um, very strong developers, um, very good network effects among developers and projects, but some very good um, growth outside of uh, ETH as well, and particularly for our venture activities really excited to see um, where developers are interested, where they're engaging. Um, and, and there's going to be some movement that happens when, um, when you have a year like 2022. So we'll see what that, what that report looks like at the end of 23. Um, but, but there's a willingness of developers to um, explore new ecosystems um, but then there's also a lot of excitement around um, what's happening on ETH and the continued build out of um, uh, of ETH activity and the ETH tech stack and, and EVM as well, of course. So as you look at, I guess the price action is, you know, somewhat reflected um, that organic, you know, growth, but also, you know, liquidity has come down quite a bit given, you know, the collapse of <laughs> exchanges and, you know, the credit cycle that also blew up. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of volumes and any interesting insights that you guys are tracking there? And imagine that, you know, you guys are very fundamentally driven in your investment process, but, you know, the market structure and the macro uh, factors also play into how you think about managing your, your portfolio. Yeah. So what one of the questions that I get pretty often right now is um, you've had a lot of the big lenders in the space um, go go out of business or pull back on their lending activity. So where is liquidity going to come from? Um, and you've also had some big market makers step back their activities. Sure. Um, what, what's interesting, though, is this isn't that different from what we've seen in prior cycles. Um, you you always have liquidity recede as um, the market goes down or or when you get toward the trough of the bear market. Um, you always have a lot more liquidity at the um, the peak of the bull market. Um, and and I think one of the things that's been very encouraging for us in this this bear market, um, and we started to see this in late June, early July of last year. Um, we actually came out with a call last summer that, that we were seeing some signs of a bottoming process. And um, this was one core component of that. It was that you started to see fundamental catalysts paid for in the market. Hmm. And um, it, it didn't really matter if liquidity had, um, had receded from a particular corner of the market. If you went through a fundamental catalyst, so think like, ETH before the merge, having some of its test nets go through merges. Um, think um, the um, uh, more recently the um, pull forward of the the Shanghai upgrade and what that's done for liquid staking derivative protocols. Um, in a bear market, um, good news is bad news, and bad news is bad news, right? <laughs> in a, a bull market. Um, you start to get rewarded for for good news, um, and and we started seeing that over the summer. Um, there were a bunch of names that um, didn't go to new lows um, on FTX. In fact, ETH um, held its low from the summer while Bitcoin broke down to to a new low. 
in our view, that's because ETH went through one of the biggest technical upgrades um, the space has seen with the merge um, going very successfully in September. And even though it didn't perform well right after the merge, the fact that it didn't go to a new low um, on, on FTX was a really strong sign that the market was pricing in more value to ETH as a result of it having gone through that fundamental catalyst. And then there were a number of names that actually have outperformed ETH um, since the summer as well. So I look at it as, um, yes, these like macro liquidity waves come and go, but there's still enough fundamentally driven liquidity in the market, even as, as early as July and August, um, but certainly today, um, where you'll see fundamentals priced in um, relatively effectively. Is it efficiently? I don't know, because it, it often takes a little time, like you'll have the catalyst and, and it doesn't get priced in immediately. And that's a great opportunity. Sure. But we're seeing enough fundamental investors bring capital to, to the space and, and engage based on real fundamental developments um, such that uh, it doesn't matter if that macro liquidity has has receded um, significantly. It does matter when you think about how big um, funds can get in the space um, when you want to be able to um, to do proper risk management. And, and I think there are varying degrees of um, uh, ways that funds think about that liquidity and what it means for their um, capacity um, broadly within crypto, within active crypto. Um, same thing for quant funds where um, they need to think about those dynamics and liquidity means they can't engage as aggressively. Um, but but what, what I think about just at a high level is, are we seeing fundamentals uh, priced into the market? And we've seen that since the summer. Before that, um, we, we actually were not seeing that that be the case. So on the fundamental point, you know, what what types of metrics are you actually looking at? Aside from developers, are you looking at TVL? Are you looking at number of wallets, like number of addresses or just talk through any, you know, maybe you could take a specific sector, things that you think are most important drivers for a particular yeah. token or sector that you keep an eye on on your screens? Yeah, so what, what I like to um, talk about is how in the equities world, um, there are all different ways to, to value stock. So um, if, if you're looking at a sector whose balance sheet is in play, you'll look at EV to EBITDA, enterprise value to, to EBITDA, um, because that, that reflects some of the balance sheet changes. If you're looking at a, a high-flying, unprofitable tech company, you're looking at a revenue multiple. If you're looking at like a more mature tech company, you're probably looking at a, a next 12 month PE. Every sector kind of has its own way of, of being valued. And the key is understanding what the other fundamentally driven investors are looking at um, and, and then using that, um, that valuation methodology. Um, in equities, you, you have um, some other things to help you and, and make the market more efficient meaning you have um, a sell side. So Wall Street that publishes estimates um, and you can look at how stocks have traded versus Wall Street estimates on a forward-looking basis over a period of time. We don't have that yet in crypto, but I think we'll have that um, down the road. So 
for us, it, it depends on whether you have a protocol that's generating revenue. If it's generating revenue, you typically want to look at a multiple of that revenue. Sometimes you make adjustments to, to that revenue. Um, sometimes you don't um, based on whether revenue is flowing to the governance token or um, whether it's just gross revenue generation. Um, and, and there's some really good platforms for, for looking at these multiples. Um, if it's a base layer, um, and they don't have um, revenue capture or material revenue capture today. What we found through the last bull market was multiples of TVL um, actually were, were very good um, indicators for how people were looking at valuation um, and how we should think about valuation. But the interesting thing is in bear markets, um, you often get changes in how people in valuation frameworks and what's important. So now that you have um, ETH with with much lower emissions after the merge, um, with 1559 in place, so you have a burn um, of ETH based on activity, um, it's going to be interesting to see whether um, you, you start going to more of a, a revenue multiple on ETH um, whether that starts to disadvantage other base layers that, that don't have as much um, revenue generation. My guess is that we're a little early for that and we're not going to see that, that shift coming out of this bear market. Um, but, but those are some of the, some of the things that, that we think about. Um, for borrow lend, TVL tends to be um, the, the right way of thinking about valuation. Um, for DEXs, it tends to be on revenue generation and on gross revenue generation. So gross fees rather than um, uh, fees that are attributable to governance tokens, because you have a wide range of um, how much fee uh, capture goes to the governance token from zero to um, to larger amounts. So that that's kind of a, a little look at, at what we're looking at. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. And, you know, from my background as well, we kind of crossed paths uh, back in our earlier careers pre-crypto on, you know, forward-looking estimates from the sell side. And so as you look at the pendulum swinging from a narrative-driven market to a more uh, mature, fundamentally-driven market, the ecosystem that supports that uh, when it comes to buy-side and sell-side research and all the analytics and information that can be tracked there uh, on a forward-looking basis, I think is super important because, to your point, you know the beauty of crypto is that all of this data is available on chain, but that's in a real-time and historical-looking perspective. These assets don't trade; maybe they do somewhat on historical performance, but when you look at you know traditional markets, these are long-duration assets, and so the value accruing to a particular token should be based off of what the forward-looking estimates of that look like. Now, it's hard for you, I'm sure you're analysts, and I saw you guys are hiring. Um, you know, ex equity research analysts to come, you know, pivot into this space and bring those types of DCF, you know, for lack of a better term, models. Um, but the, you know, benchmarking around that for, you know, what is one fund versus another? What is the sell side versus the buy side? I think on a particular key driver of a of a token going out three, five, ten years just doesn't exist today. But as this industry continues to mature, you know, you're seeing some more of the banks, like I was reading, a, you know, Bernstein putting out research on Ethereum. It's great to see that type of activity uh, because that will increase the institutional adoption of this market, both from a trading research and valuation perspective. 
It's really funny. So when you're when you're on the equities investing side, um, there are a lot of people who say like, well, but the sell side estimates are never right. <laughs> and and it's like it's not about whether the sell side estimates are right or not. It's about having this number that's a projection that's out there that everyone sees and then everyone benchmarks to that. So if a, a company is expected to earn a dollar of earnings for for next year, and it's trading at its average multiple, and you think it's going to earn a dollar twenty. Well, then you know there's likely upside um, to the the stock over the next year. Um, if, if it's trading at a twenty percent premium to its normal multiple, and the consensus number is a dollar, then the street might already be pressing pricing in that upside that that you think is likely to come. So it's really important for benchmarking where. Um, the street expectations are versus where your expectations are. And we don't have that right now in crypto, which probably adds to some of the volatility um, that, that we see in the space. And we're going to get all of this infrastructure over time. And the more you get this infrastructure, the more efficient the market becomes and, and the less opportunity there is for alpha generation over the long run. So um, we're, we're happy having that emerge at kind of a, a nice steady pace. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, it's great to be, you know, picking winners in a market that doesn't have a lot of clear benchmarks to trade against um, as you're doing a lot of the, you know, brute force analysis of going through and understanding the valuation, but also keeping an eye more towards, you know, some of the narrative driven uh, price action that maybe didn't impact your investment process before you came into crypto, but certainly does now. Um, but yeah, it definitely creates an opportunity for, for, you know, investors that are here in the space to really deeply understand projects and where they're heading, uh, that the market doesn't have a very clear vision of what the consensus looks like. And I think what's also interesting too, is that you look at crypto versus like traditional equities, traditional equities, there's the lack of standardization on like operating metrics, right? Everybody has their own adjusted EBITDA number or their own, you know, unit economics that matter as you kind of like lift under the hood. But for crypto, a lot of that is already baked into the protocols and into the actual chains themselves. So you can see those numbers in a more comparable way um, than you probably would by digging through a bunch of equity research models from the sell side in uh, you know, looking at Tesla, for example. So very 100%. interesting. Totally. So, uh, yeah, I would love to, uh, you know, any other thoughts you want to share with the audience? This has been great. We've covered a lot of ground here. Um, but, yeah, I would love to see if there's anything else you wanted to share with the folks on the call. No, no, this has been awesome. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, we um, we, we put out a call a few weeks ago um, that uh, we we really like what we see from from the bottoming process, that the fact that we've been now seven months into that. Um, that, um, there, there's been, it, you know, one thing that we highlighted, there are a lot of questions around was crypto just a beneficiary of the, the liquidity bubble, the everything mm -hmm. bubble. Um, and, and we showed the performance of crypto, um, from June 5th of 2020, which is the date we used. It was when the NASDAQ got back to its high from before COVID, um, through to when we did the webinar and, um, crypto was up nicely. We, we looked at ETH and Bitcoin versus like Apple and the NASDAQ and Goldman has an expensive uh, stock, uh, expensive software index. And that was down. Um, and um, we, we then went into, well, what 
what are the drivers of those fundamentals? And, and it's a lot of the things that we talked about, right? You've the reason why, in our view, crypto is outperformed over that um, that bubble period, obviously went up a lot and then came down a lot, um, but still point to point up nicely is because you've had this secular fundamental growth in exchange volumes, DEX volumes, um, NFT activity, uh, stablecoin activity. We think stablecoins are one of the, the big product market fits that came into, into view in the last bull market. Massive increase in both stablecoins outstanding and stablecoin volumes on a monthly basis. So just a great story from developers to activity to new verticals over the last um, bull market um, that, that we think is the reason why crypto prices point to point through the liquidity bubble have held up really well, um, despite going up a lot and then coming down a lot. Yeah, not only, I mean, the stable coins, not only has there been more understanding of the different designs and frameworks behind stable coins, but it's also kind of pushed out some of the more risky uh, frameworks that, uh, you know, like a USDC does not uh, follow. And then also, I don't know if you saw the news this morning, but Visa is looking at uh, settling USDC on Ethereum. So seeing that, you know, yeah. what the number one payment network processes trillions of dollars, uh, retail and commercial payments on an annual basis, uh, looking at settling payments in this space to allow, you know, their issuers and, and, and merchants to be able to transact in, a, in, a, in USDC. Things that have been building for months, years, and are starting to come to the surface, which is uh, extremely exciting about where this uh, this whole industry heads. Uh, so completely agree with you on all of that. Yeah, super powerful. Uh, you want to talk about real world use cases in crypto. There you go. So, uh, well, thank you, Seth. It's been a pleasure. Um, really appreciate the time. And we'll uh, we'll talk to you again very soon. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. And thanks, everybody, for joining Compound. We've uh, our Compound Thesis. We've got all of our episodes up on our YouTube and our Spotify and on our website, compoundtreasury.com slash thesis. Thanks all. We'll be back again soon.